I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm P. Moran. And I'm Gene Kelly. I mean, uh, Casey <laughs> Gilner. Sorry. <laughs> and we love to watch. We love to watch did Xanadu before it did Singing in the Rain. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to stay up late. Good morning. Good morning to you. When the band began to play, the stars were shining bright. Hey, Pete. Hey, Casey. Hey, how you doing, Aaron? How you doing, Casey? I'm fantastic. How are you guys doing? Casey, you are back again on the show. You are just locking up classics only. Second time. I'm back. And yeah, I'm only doing movies before 1954. Well, you're you're going in a proper decade order. So you went 40s and 50s. So uh, I know we were talking about maybe you joining us when we do Inherent Vice. But I got to tell you, that's 2010s. That's like six shows away. Yeah. Yeah. You got to do 60s, 70s, 80s. You're going to have to do a 60s classic, and then you can come back and do Long Goodbye. And then <laughs> a few years after that, you get to do Inherent you Vice. Do uh, also, uh, before we let Casey introduce himself a little more, we'd like to issue a formal apology for last week's episode. I am sorry. <laughs> if you came to the show to listen to, about uh, the, the great movie, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, I'm glad you got about 30% of it. But uh, we're going to be a little more focused tonight. Uh, Are we? And that, I I mean, I am in the process of editing. The show hasn't come out. It will by the, it's coming out tomorrow from where we're recording this. And as I was listening, I was like, what? We've done some weird shows. Uh, I literally texted Peter and I'm like, what the fuck was this? Like, <laughs> what? What it like it it just goes on and on and on. It is not about the movie. It's not about anything. It was like three people simultaneously having a stroke uh, and, <laughs> and working through it, like really trying to power through. So, uh, but we have we have more. Yeah, it, it is. It does sound like. Uh... You know when your when your brain is dying, your body's supposed to be flooded with like DMT and all these crazy chemicals for some reason, and you're supposed to have crazy hallucinations. It sounds like a stream of consciousness of someone who whose brain is just shutting down <laughs> and just like lighting off firecrackers and cracking open champagne and and no, like there's no responsible adults to tell them to stop or get back on track. Uh, it's bad. So would you uh, say we're off to a better start than last week? Or- or what? I mean, we at least have an agenda. Oh. We have an agenda. Most of the Apologies, words we and then everything else. Most of the words we said string together in standard sentences. We haven't done a complete rerun down of the Bible uh, from yeah. from the perspective of daddies. Uh, yeah, it's daddy. Sorry, everyone. Yeah, both daddies on this. Both daddy hosts are very sorry. Casey, daddy guest is sorry. He has to listen to this anyway. Uh, if you've never heard us before, where we love to watch, we're a movie podcast. We pick a theme and we do movie. Movies over the course of a month around that theme, and if we remember, we compare and contrast them. And uh, this month is our third incarnation of Musical May, uh, Musical May 3, classic movies for thee, where we are uh, going through some classic musicals. We've done a couple other incarnations of this, doing uh, some kind of uh, odds and ends musicals that uh, neither Peter and I had ever seen before. The second incarnation was more recent cult musicals that we both really loved. 
Uh, and this month we're we're going back to to some of the ones that when you think of iconic movie musicals, uh, you think of of these movies. And there's not a more iconic one. Uh, from a classic sense, Dan singing in the rain. And we're joined once again, who guested on our It's a Wonderful Life episode, uh, Casey Giltner. Casey, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, I am Casey Giltner. I'm from Wisconsin originally. I live in Minneapolis now. I'm a lawyer by day. I write some movies at night. And I just love to talk about movies, NBA, soccer, politics, and religion. So if you have any... <laughs> podcast that you host on those other four topics give me a call i'm available i mean we could do a soccer one but it would be yes all right it'd be short uh peter do you know anything about soccer you kind of seem like you're you're younger than me you're probably a little bit into like you're now in san diego I i bet you people are like hip and into soccer there uh yeah yeah i pretend to be in into soccer like twice a year What's your it's favorite? an excuse to drink like uh, Guinness early in the day, but yeah, I, I pretend to be in soccer about twice a year. What's your favorite part of the games, Casey? The kicking or the the part where you don't kick? Oh, it's definitely the part when you where you don't kick. You know, I'm a defender, so I'm always like not kicking the ball and just waiting <laughs> as other people kick the ball, and then I pounce and I try to kick the ball. You know, it's but it's all in the yeah. waiting and the pouncing. But uh, so is your soccer is answering the question that a tribe called Quest asked. Can I kick it? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> right on. <laughs> well, not not from Casey's perspective. Well, well, Casey very much wants you not to kick it, as he just said. Yeah. I'm just saying he can kick it, okay? Yeah. Oftentimes, not a- oftentimes, I will not kick it, and I will just kick you instead. And uh, it, it's also very efficient either way. Uh, you don't get past me. You know, if I get the ball, great. If I don't. Let me ask you another very important question. How much of your 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 strategy is about kicking the ball away as opposed to just breaking up their flow so they stop kicking it? Uh, wow. Let me ask you a question. As we, are, we are so already way off tangent. Uh, are, is soccer games played in ballparks? Uh, technically, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, I won the game for tonight, which is uh, have a 60-second conversation about soccer. Peter, now it's your turn. You're part of the game uh, where you have to uh, have a 60-second conversation with with, uh, Casey about the NBA. Go. I like the part when the siren goes like... And I also like how the scoreboard is like a big box. Mm. Scoreboard is a box. I'm pretty sure you're talking about hockey, though, um, with the blaring yeah, of might the be horn. About that. Yeah, um, hat tricks or hat tricks. Those are soccer. Yeah, yeah. Nets, nets. These are nets on the hoops. Yeah, right on. Hell yeah, I'm right on track. Uh, I'm a big fan of the part where the people erupt flames and do eight flips on their way to dunk the basketball. Uh, and also, it's Al Gore. <laughs> <laughs> And also, all the teams are from 1994. Yeah, and also, it's two-on-two, classic two-on-two rules, uh, where it's Al Gore and Bill Clinton versus two of the Beastie Boys. (laughs) And this is now going to be a podcast about Space Jam. It's NBA Jam. I thought you were an NBA fan. You don't know about NBA Jam? And I'm talking about the classic 1996 movie starring Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny, Space Jam. 
Uh, fun fact, not a regulation NBA game, unlike the <laughs> NBA Jam matchups that we played. Uh, anyway, so. But that's all That's all politics, though. They just didn't want to. NBA didn't want to sponsor a game against a bunch of illegal aliens. Uh, yes. The, and you're specifically referring to the Looney Tunes because they're from another dimension. Mm-hmm. Build a wall <laughs> through to keep the, the portal. The portal. You got to stop the portal. They're coming over here and taking our... Uh, fuds? How many, how many portals are there? Is there just the one? Yeah. No one I knows. I feel like building a wall around a portal actually would work. You just got to keep throwing bricks in until <laughs> till it stacks <laughs> up enough. Um, and worst case scenario, you just hit like Bugs Bunny in the head and he's like, whoa, whoa. And he has like a cartoonish moment I, to himself and everyone gets to have fun. I'm starting to get extremely suspicious that Peter and I are no longer qualified to host this show. Um, but Casey, do you no, want to host this show? This is good show? talk because they're making Space Jam 2 with LeBron James right now. So Yeah. And we'll be doing probably an eight-episode rep- retrospective on all the Jam movies. Uh, Space I mean, Jam, th- Space Jam 2. Um, Can we throw Air Bud in there? We've actually done, done Air, Air Bud, Bud already, yeah. so oh, really? we'll have to re-release that one. Yeah. That was our 50th episode, and I'll tell you what, uh, Casey, that dog can sure as shit play basketball. And why can he play basketball? Because there's nothing in the rule book that says that he can't. Uh, anyway... So, uh, before we actually get into classic loophole, (laughs) before we, uh, before we actually get into, uh, the movie, we've been doing a segment, uh, just so just to catch you up, Casey, a little bit too. So we started doing musical maze because, uh, when we first started doing this show, actually before we even had a podcast and Peter and I just knew each other through a internet film group, his he staked out a position as a guy who just didn't like musicals. They didn't work for him. He wasn't a fan. We did a our first month of this because uh, I, I was not contentious, but I always enjoyed uh, musicals or at least one good ones. And uh, and so Peter uh, was like, no, I just don't like it. There's like a couple of exceptions, but for the most part, I don't enjoy it. So our first challenge was doing, like I said, movies that neither of us had seen that was kind of a disaster because we've seen so many movies. We ended up picking some some musicals that weren't that great for the most part. Uh, but then we had a lot of fun last year doing stuff like The Lure and uh, Tokyo Tribe and Little Shop of Horrors and Hedwig and the Angry Inch, all stuff that we already liked. And in that time frame, Peter started messaging me and saying, hey, I watched Chicago. I think I liked it. And then I think there was a couple other ones that you watched that you enjoyed. And you were like, I think I like musicals now. And so we're going big and not going home uh, with with our third incarnation of this, of doing these classic movies, some of which Peter saw when he was younger and rejected them. uh, And some of them he's never seen to see if we really have converted Peter into a uh, musical lover. And, uh, and this is actually a big one because I still remember Peter. Hold up, hold up. And Chicago's the one that did it for for you. That's the one that, that like launched your musical fandom. It was actually a revisit of Little Shop of Horrors, and then I saw Chicago, and I loved it. I don't know, I don't know what clicked in me, but that's, it's, that's is it because your movies? Well, I guess you know Renee Zellweger, top of her game, just can't be denied. 
Yeah, she cannot be denied. And she's back, baby. She's playing Judy Garland. <laughs> Do you think it resonated that I'm sure people will be talking about 10 minutes after the movie comes out? Do you think it resonated you with you because you're from Chicago and we're like, "Hey, I know That's all these deep. places, the courtroom, the jail." <laughs> It was an accurate documentary of what it was like for me to live in Chicago in the year 2016. Some real deep so. psychoanalysis there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is kind of the big one of the month because uh, way be- again, before we started this, this, um, this podcast. This is the big daddy. It's the big daddy of the month. Um, unlike the the Adam Sandler vehicle, which of course will be the the prime big daddy of our big daddy month about large daddies, um, and and uh, now now Casey, imagine this for like eighty minutes last week, and this is why we we owed people an apology, uh, but. I remember us having a chat and you're like, I, you, you staked a pretty clear claim. Like there is not a classic musical I like. And I said, well, of course, singing in the rain is the exception. And I think you said, no dude. And did like a kickflip and, you know, did air guitar and drank a surge. But you were like, I don't really care for singing in the rain. And that surprised me. Um, just because it feels like this is a movie that, even if you don't like musicals, even if you don't like old movies, that you would you would find something to enjoy here. It's it's light, it's breezy, it's colorful, uh, and I'll even say my uh, my daughter, uh, who is four, I said, "Hey, I'm going to watch this. You might like it uh, for for the podcast I do. For, um, do you want to watch it with me?" And I had also put it on her her tablet as just a movie that she could watch, not expecting her to discover it. Apparently, she has already watched it many times. Uh, and so she knew it uh, and was like, oh, yeah, I like this movie. And uh, since we watched it on Saturday, has been watching it on her iPad or asking to watch it uh, since then. So even like my four-year-old, who I was kind of surprised that like – uh, because this is so much about like the transition from silent film to to sound, like even she was like, I really, I really enjoy the 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 jokes and the slapstick and the dancing and all that kind of stuff. So it's a huge preamble, but Peter, I gotta know, what did you think of Singing in the Rain this time around? I loved it. Let's get the tension out of the way right right now. I loved it. Um, I think also <clears throat> when I saw it when I was younger, I didn't need a movie like this. Uh, for one, I didn't like musicals as a kid. Uh, two, this sort of like jubilant, uncynical kind of movie was just not in my diet. I didn't need something like this. And... Now that I'm older, I'm more open-minded, I'm more uh, accepting of stuff that's outside my wheelhouse, I'm more accepting of just, like, unironic joy. Like, yeah, I I needed this movie in the same sense that, you know, we all needed Paddington 2 last year and fucking, like, we need these, like, wholesome web cartoons that everyone freaks out about. Like, there's something, uh, there's something about this that, that harkens back to an earlier area, but it's not... An era, earlier era that makes it feel even more uh, more exciting and more vibrant in a sense because, like, it helps you connect with the past. But, like, I don't say that in, in, like, a way to talk down to it or, like, say that it's naive or something because it actually is really smart and, like, has, like, crack whip timing 
and is still pretty relevant. Uh, and like, yeah, I, I loved it kind of on every level. I, I had stuff to chew on, but even wasn't when I wasn't chewing, I was just like watching, watching some tap dancing, having a good time. Yeah, and it was. It's funny you mentioned that. Like, it, it's it's actually not that sweet of a movie, and it was considered uh, pretty mean and a biting satire at the time of its release. Um, and I think a lot of that uh, edge still holds. Uh, it and and and. Um, I, you know, I saw it in high school or college or whenever I started going through the AFI stuff. Uh, but I had seen enough silent movies at the time, uh, even at that younger age, to, like, understand what they were doing and why that was even, like, historically interesting that they were making a movie about that transition and then poking fun at it. And there was a lot just as a – even as a younger film fan to go, oh, yeah, all those all those Chaplin people and Buster Keaton people that I had watched in some of the silent movies, like, I didn't see them in any of the movies after that. Um, and, and how that transition was very difficult for people. And this is kind of mocking, uh, wh- why so many of them had, uh, had problems, uh, and how they reacted when they weren't allowed to continue to be actors in kind of a, uh, uh, I don't know what the right word is, a, uh, uh, indelicate way. Uh, but Casey, before we get into the movie proper, uh, what's your experience with this movie? Yeah. Uh, and I'll say when I asked, I, when I, before I suggested some titles for you, uh, I did, uh, I was working with your wife still at the time and she goes, you can ask him, but he's going to say singing in the rain. And it was a very quick response from you. She knows me well. And I mean, like Pete, I was never, you know, super into musicals. Um, even now, I'm pretty cynical about any new musical that comes out. Uh, I was really excited for Les Mis a few years ago, and I was just crushed when I saw it. I was like, I thought it was terrible. So, like, but I think I saw it in college also, um, first time, and I think it. I remember Roger Ebert saying, like, if there was one movie he could go back and watch again for the first time, it would be Singing in the Rain. And so probably based on his recommendation, I went and I saw it. And despite my cynical, cynical heart, I loved everything about it. Um, You know, it's just so friggin' delightful to watch people tap dance and corny as it may be at times you know then the satire didn't really cut through to young college casey at the time um looking back on maybe the uh or from a historical film perspective but i just it's a movie i keep going back to every year or two um because like ebert said there's not really a more pure example of just the joy of cinema than the many many aspects of this movie um and not surprisingly you know given how how hollywood operates the movie is about you know a changing of, of it's about hollywood itself and oftentimes the best you know movies are about the movie making process and they proved that yet again with this movie um so yeah this uh 
So I was always a big fan of musicals. What I wasn't a fan of, as you kind of alluded to, not well, not that you didn't allude to that I wasn't a fan of it, but you mentioned the tap dancing. Like I wasn't a big fan of dancing sequences in musicals. And I know that probably sounds really stupid, but it's like, you know, I, I liked the singing and I liked the songs, but like, And I didn't mind when they were singing and it was a song I like and they were also dancing. What I wasn't a fan of, at least in high school or younger, was like when they just would dance for a few minutes. And I was like, all right, like this is not get to something, Uh, you know, singing or something like that. Uh, And as a matter of fact, I think I watched An American in Paris before this movie uh, because and that. The last, like, 20 minutes of that movie is a huge, extended, colorful dance sequence. And I remember kind of being bored. Like, it just wasn't that exciting to me. That's another, you know, colorful Gene Kelly dancing. Uh, And I actually haven't revisited it since then. And I really want to go back to it because I really think this was the movie where I started to enjoy the tap dancing and the dancing interludes. Uh, and then soon after this, I, st- I watched a few Astaire Rogers movies, which were wrapping up the month with one of them, Top Hat. And then I was like, like over whatever that was. Like I, seeing Swing Time and, 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 uh, you know, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dance sequences and that, I was like, oh, I love this so much. Uh, and, and that, and that kind of has changed how I look at, uh, at, at musicals and and that how much I appreciate those kind of uh, the both the the artistry around it and the choreography, but just like there is something fun that I missed out on in the same way that maybe you guys missed out on like the belting into song fun part of musicals, but there was something about Singing in the Rain that made me appreciate like how fun watching people dance can be. Yeah, I was surprised how much I enjoyed the like extended clockwork tap dancing yeah some 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 of the dancing in this is just like i'm like you you, you're a fucking robot like there's no fucking and i know that behind the scenes like uh, gene kelly was kind of a terror at like making sure that everyone was on cue and on time and like there were a lot of uh a lot of stories that Debbie Reynolds shared later yeah. about Gene Kelly being kind of a dick. <laughs> yeah. um, she said the but, two hardest things she's ever done is uh, uh, giving birth and making Singing in the Rain because Gene Kelly was pissed that she was a gymnast and not a dancer. It is a movie that is is based in the sort of like flights of fancy and like the, the dancing is not uh, – What's the term for it? Diegetic. Like, the dancing is, like, people expressing their emotions. Like, this isn't just all people dancing specifically on stage or for a production. A lot of it is. Like, the entire extended pitch for the Cavalier gentleman. That's obviously, like, within a certain context of a performance. But, like, a lot of the dancing in the movie is just supposed to be happening in real life, which is exactly the kind of shit that I hated when I was a kid, where people (laughs) just start dancing for no fucking reason. Uh, Well, this one is... So this one is so specific to it that like the whole plot of this movie hinges on the idea that like uh, Gene Kelly's friends like, hey, you ever notice how you're dancing all the time? What if we what if we recut this movie to include the dancing you're doing literally constantly and you're very good at it? Like, I don't know. Maybe we should put that in a movie. And he's like, you know what? 
That just might work. (laughs) (laughs) Who would watch a movie about dancing? So yeah, he's dancing so much in real life that people are like, start to notice and and suggest it as a career move for him. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, uh, Bill, you're always uh, fishing uh, clogs out of uh, drain pipes. You should go professional. It just might work. I get up and notice you're uh, constantly stepping on buildings. Maybe you should be like a Godzilla situation. (laughs) Hey, uh, you know how you're always uh, making love to numerous partners and uh, and, uh, on camera and multiple takes? (laughs) Boy, do I have a career for you. (laughs) You know how you're rarely coming inside them? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but it is it is such a funny part that like yeah they just they just are dancing around, but it's not like a part of their jobs quite yet. Yeah, and I you know I say if you uh, if you're good at something, don't do it for free. Uh, so yeah, well they saved the movie. Gene, yeah, because if Gene Kelly didn't make a movie at the end of this, uh, I would just think he was a big old fucking schmuck. Can I? I'll tell you guys one thing before, and then we'll transition into going through the plot and talking about the movie more specifics. Um, can I, Gene Kelly's an amazing dancer, but I need to I need you to just get this off my chest, and I feel a little bad about it. But I fucking hate the stupid face he makes when he's dancing. <laughs> like, like I, well, he has to he has to dance uh, with that super wide grin so you can fucking. Yeah, I'm about right? to strangle you, serial killer. Look, you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's doing it so he can actually breathe. Like, right? stay real still. I'm about to. <laughs> sl- sl- it is slide this knife against your throat. <laughs> I don't know what it is like. And you're right. You're 100 percent right, Casey. It's not. Uh, it's not necessarily specific to gene kelly like you watch fred astaire they all have these like all these dancers had these big smiles on their face i gene kelly's like actively bothers me i try to watch (laughs) i try to watch his feet but like especially in the gotta dance sequence where he's like dancing which is amazing and the sequence is gorgeous and we'll talk i'm sure quite about little uh quite a lot about it but whenever he's like looking at the camera and doing like that huge smile like confused out of towner look i'm like there's something about this i fucking like hate and i'm not a violent man but people talk about punchable faces and there's just i don't like it please stop and it's weird like he just whatever he is doing even though that is the way that people danced in all these movies with a huge fucking smile on their face he is either bad at faking a smile or his smile is uncomfortable at the time a lot of actors just like got by on these like big emotive grins because the movies were supposed to be these big joyous comedies right um and gene kelly is such an intense person that and he's such a a human contortionist with his own body that he is like he probably doesn't need okay he probably needs to smile like 70 percent of what he's doing to have his mouth wide enough and like get in the right position where he can like breathe through his mouth very heavily to make sure he can keep his fucking body moving uh but uh he's probably like going 30 percent overboard for what he needs to do and he's just because he's like well every part of this needs to be exhausting including in my face i need to look like i i smoked the joker's laughing gas on purpose do you think he tried to keep it in the same position like for cuts 
Like so that like oh yeah so that like they would have to cut to him back and forth and like hey if I always look like a big dumb goofy idiot uh it's always gonna match. It also helps uh make everyone on set terrified to tell you no. <laughs> yeah, well this was uh this was co-directed by Gene Kelly. Like that was the other thing about Gene Kelly and kind of his like um legendary tyrannical behavior on some of these movies. Like he he's one of the rare. I shouldn't say rare stars because like Chaplin Keaton, like they were making these movies that had a, a amazing physical performances and had like, you know, some some level of directorship. But like he was like in charge in a way that a lot of 50 stars weren't like 40s and 50s. Hollywood was like famously studio based <laughs> um, and very much like, well, move you around and we'll kill you, honey. Like. Do your job or we'll find someone better. We can make anyone a star. Uh, but Gene Which is Ke- also weird because the movie is really, uh, really likes the producer character. Yeah, it does. Well, there was also another producer involved. He was just like co-director or whatever. Uh, but yeah, but Gene Kelly did have a level of authorship over a lot of his movies. Um, American in Paris, It's Always Fair Weather, a lot of other ones that like the typical 50s movie star didn't have. Maybe just maybe just watch his feet, though, you know? Oh, yeah. No, that's what I do. Well, Aaron's a feet man, so he's always looking at the I'm feet. I'm always anyways. looking at the feet. And also, I actually got a uh, version. That, he only looks at the face after he's calm. Yeah. I uh, I actually ordered a version I, on accident off of Amazon for rental that uh, had done some digital alterations where it transposed uh, pictures of his face smiling onto the feet. Um it was very that was a really disturbing. Smart move of them. That's it weird. was. I think they were trying to just play around with technology. You know, there's like colorized versions and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. It was like let's just always have Gene Kelly's smiling face on his tippy toes, uh, and it was it was disturbing. But as Peter mentioned, I did jack off quite a bit. Um, do you guys want to talk more about singing in the rain? <laughs> I want to talk about anything but you jacking off. So yes. <laughs> Hey, Aaron, do you have any alternate taglines for us, buddy? Uh, yeah, Peter. Interesting that you should ask. I do have an alternate tagline. Not one that I wrote, but I'm trying to think of as quickly as possible as I say all of these words. Um, now with less G. <laughs> because because it's singing, not yeah. singing. Um, which I think was pretty hip. Getting rid of letters always makes you cool. Or adding a letter if it's Z. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta remove consonants. <laughs> okay, so singing in the rain, not singing. Brought to you by Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, singing in the rain. So two actors, Don Lockwood and Lita M- Lamont, are arriving at a big premiere, and they're sort of posing as like Hollywood's hottest it couple, and people are eating it up. And uh, they're big movie stars, and they're sort of yeah, they're sort of playing off being a couple, but uh, behind the scenes, they're uh, anything but. So we see uh, Don tell this version of a story, this like storied version of his childhood, this illustrious childhood. And this lustrous background where he was he was uh went to a, a proper uh, 
classical train musical training and you know saying in all the hottest clubs but what we're actually being shown is like him being like a little hood rat like growing up in the presumably the depression and uh just trying to like scrap and make their way dancing in pool halls like that sort of thing rising his way through the ranks and we sort of hear see the origin story of him and lena uh he was he became a famous stuntman and one of the movies he was on lena and him uh teamed up and they sort of became uh, cast together for the rest of their career through through these silent romantic movies. Um, as this is happening, Don is sort of a playboy and traveling around Hollywood. Uh, you know, his star is rising and he ch- tries to uh, come on to uh, a young girl uh, who's sort of like trying to make her way in Hollywood, but doesn't really have any success under her belt, belt, Kathy Selden. Don and Kathy sort of like Don's being a jackass playboy with her, and she's not eating it up. And then um, Kathy goes on to her career as a dancer in Hollywood. Lena keeps on doing movies with Don. Don's career gets bigger as stars rising. And then they run into each other again. And uh, just, a I don't know, a few weeks later. And Don sort of feels sorry for being a jackass. And he sort of apologizes. And they, they fall in love. And Lena thinks that she can make Don his, whether because she actually likes him or she just like loves the idea of attaching herself to, you know, their couple as a stardom uh, is debatable, but she essentially is challenged by this new fangled fad, the talkies, uh, because Alina has a terrible high-pitched nasally voice. Uh, not anything like mine. And she takes on this... Uh, <laughs> She takes on this. She tries to take on a role where she's actually using her own voice in a movie, and people hate it. And the movie essentially like is a, is a huge disaster. It's the first talkie for the studio, and it's a huge disaster for both her and Don. It's terribly produced. So, um, the, essentially, there's sort of a pivoting that goes on. They find out that Lena can sing beautifully. And has a beautiful voice, and so she takes... Oh, sorry. They find out that Kathy can sing beautifully, and she takes over as, like, Lena's uh, dub artist. Uh, she sings for her, and she does the voice. Uh, and because... It's basically Lena, a Millie Vanilli situation. <laughs> similar. Um, similar. And they get similarly outed, right? Wasn't yeah. Millie Vanilli outed during a show? Yeah, during a show, uh, I actually think it was a performance at an award show where, like, yeah, the tape skipped or something. Tape skipped, and then it didn't a real go back. Ashley Simpson sort of situation. Oh, yeah. She was a skater boy. She said, see you later, boy. No, that's that's, that's not a, her that's at a all. different person. It's Avril Lavigne. <laughs> I don't remember her song. But I do know what you're talking about. Uh, Jude Law was the host and uh, felt bad for her in the credits, but but still was very handsome during it. Damn that Jude <laughs> that so Law. Nice of him. I love that, man. It was so nice of him to be handsome. Um, Give you $100 right now if you can name Ashley Simpson's one hit. uh, Too late. (laughs) I don't trust you, not Google. uh, So, uh, anyways, so there, there, uh, Don starts to sort of uh, push to have his love, Kathy, who he's, you know, he's falling deeper in love with her, and she's sort of uh, bonding with Don and his best friend, Cosmo. 
you know, just the most third willy, third wheel of them all. Um, they, they all sort of bond together and basically, like, want to make the great talkies. And they make a bunch of movies that people, like, fall in love with, but with Lena as the face. Um, and essentially, uh, <laughs> there's a... Uh, Don gets to do some movies he wants to do, and then Lena starts to get power hungry and basically says, like, well, Kathy, Kathy's job... Kathy was basically about to be... Um, they were going to make her her own star. Yeah, but but in order to make her her own star, they were going to capitalize on the fact that she voiced Lena, and Lena thought yeah. that that was going to embarrass her and ruin her career. So Lena um, found a sort of legal way to manipulate the producer into making... Uh, making... Uh, Lena stay in the spotlight and leaving Kathy as her voice because Kathy was also on contract. So Kathy would be forced to do it. And then the night of the big premiere, everyone loves the movie. Lena comes out. They're like, sing. She says, she's like, I'll, I'll sing. I'll sing. And then behind the curtain, Kathy is supposed to be singing. Um, and then the producer fucking hates Lena. Cosmo hates Lena. Obviously, Don hates Lena. And they conspire to open up the curtains and expose Lena. And uh, Lena freaks out and runs away. Her career's ruined, presumably. And everybody falls in love with, with uh, lovely Kathy Selden. And her and Gene Kelly sort of They make off. a movie called Singing in the Rain. Yeah, they make a movie called Singing in the Rain, and that's, that's the movie we watched. So it's how all the movie that we watched got made. Uh, let's start with an easy one uh, before we get into some bigger stuff. The movie that they ultimately made to save the silent film that was turned to sound uh, that then had new sequences added, that movie was fucking terrible, right? The Dancing like, Cavalier? Yeah, I mean, it is a movie that, as they described it, had these serious black and white sequences interspersed with fantasy. I'm not sure who's fantasy. Uh, colorful musical numbers involving a businessman going to New York in pantomime. Uh, I don't think that like, – like, the movie treats it as, you've saved the studio, you've saved the movie, and I think what they've made is the worst movie of all time. Hot take. They're just terrible filmmakers. Like, the <laughs> entire studio. Yeah. Uh, they Yeah, they first they can't ad- – first they're like, no sound ever, it's a joke. Uh, then they can't adapt to it and, like, get anything right. And then they're like, I know how we'll save it. Um, for some reason, it just reminds me – and this is such a specific reference. I hope one listener – is like I know what you're talking about. Um, do you guys remember the TV, the TV show Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip? Oh hell yeah, I do. Okay, so the first episode's pretty good, right? It's about like the freak out on television and the two edgy showrunners finally get to take over Saturday Night Live, right? Uh, and that's like the pilot's. I actually think is pretty good. And the second episode is how how do we uh, follow up with this? big you know our first big episode and the the meltdown that happened and they spend the whole episode going fuck how do we show our brilliance and get everyone excited and there's a part where matthew perry and uh who's who's the other guy bradley woodford look at each other and go gilbert and sullivan they're like gilbert and sullivan and they're like and they everyone is like this is genius and they sing like i am a modern of whatever of a major general but it's all changed to be about how they're going to follow the rules of television and everyone treats it as a brilliant out of the gate thing and it was that's when the moment that i knew the show was like 
this is the fucking dumbest thing I've ever seen. Like it is the it is the Thirty Rock problem that they avoided, where all their sketches were bad, and that was the joke. As opposed to like, oh, if we're making a show about brilliant sketch writers, that's that's hard to do. Like making brilliant sketches and brilliant television is very tough. Uh, and so, like that part where they just look at each other and go, "I got it." Gilbert and Sullivan reminds me of the point where they lock eyes and goes, I got it. We'll do fantasy musical sequences set in the modern day. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, I don't think that's going to work. I'd uh, like to but- just take a moment to say that yeah. this pilot for Studio 60 is one of the greatest pilots ever. It's good. Made in but- television. And the disparity between, yeah, the rest of the show that followed and that first initial brilliant start is just... Really, really sad, and you just made me depressed by bringing it. Back. It's well, it's and I needed to get it out because it is a moment that occurs to me so often for a show that I haven't seen in thirteen years. That moment where they look at each other and their eyes light up and they repeat Gilbert and Sullivan back to each other as like, uh, and I've said that before. It's like trying to think of a tough idea and being like, I got it, Gilbert and Sullivan. It's a reference no one gets, but it, it's like the idea of. If I was to encapsulate that as like if you if that somehow entered our vernacular, it's the idea of shouting out something that and thinking you're brilliant while being the dumbest idea that you could possibly have. Like that's what doing a Gilbert and Sullivan is. You know what, Aaron Sorkin, stick to movies, leave television in the past. Yeah, definitely my television. Yeah, leave television. And also, don't remake Singing in the Rain, because you'll do the same thing. Uh, so that's a little weird. Uh, but yeah, this movie just seemed... I would love someone to put together a cut of what they think this movie was at the end of the day, because it's very confusing. Anyway, it's the least important part of this. I wanted to get it out of the way. Um, let's talk uh, Let's talk a little bit about like what this movie's about, which is a real thing. We kind of already alluded to, which is the transition that studios had to go through very suddenly uh, from silent movies to sound once the jazz singer came out. Like, it was sudden. You think of, like, the other big transitions that that Hollywood has had to make, like, you know, black and white to color. Well, black and white and color coexisted for 30 years. Uh, You know, CGI special effects existed with practical effects. They got better. They've gone back and forth. You know, 3D definitely was a big thing, but they still would show 2D movies. Uh, And a lot of, uh, like, random post-conversion attempts were abandoned after they didn't think it was going to be that big of a thing. And that went back and forth for a while. It feels like it's kind of a shrug now. Um just a thing that exists side by side with 2D movies. But, like, what is depicted in this movie is essentially true. That, like, everyone needs to start to to throw away your silent movies, make sound movies only. It happened almost from, like, a, you know, 1931 is all silent movies. 1933 is all sound movies. And a lot of the stars didn't survive that transition because as Debbie Reynolds' character so accurately kind of pegs uh, – pegs gene kelly when he's trying to nag her is like well you're not quite an actor you're a pantomime and what they kind of found out was yeah a lot of these our best actors are pantomimes they're not actors and we're really lucky that the producer in this movie um by all accounts maybe the only good 
producer character, the only uh, positive yeah. producer character in any of these movies ever. Really supportive of of the talent, you have to say. Yeah, yeah usually yeah. producers Wonderful are like man. The, the vicious money men, right? Yeah, like, except for anyways, the really except for the woman's he... career he destroys at the end. You know, he really doesn't oh, yeah. put a foot wrong. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, she was trying to, to destroy a bunch of other people's careers at the same time. Yeah, um, but but in fairness, it was the 50s and she was a woman trying to have ownership of her career and her image. And that needs to be stopped yeah, right out. Squashed. Yeah, it needs to be squashed. Amazingly, at um, the end, those three guys uh, are able to take away the agency of two women and their career in <laughs> one move. And I, you know, really, really uh, ahead of its time. Yeah, it's nice oh, to see a movie yeah. where the white men win. <laughs> yeah. Also, they did remake this movie. It's called The Artist, and it won Best Pic- Picture. So uh, it basically is the exact same plot, just without all the dancing. I know it has plenty of the dancing, without all the singing. There we go. I have never seen The Artist. I don't remember a fucking thing about The Artist. I remember watching it, being like, that was pleasant enough. <laughs> <laughs> and then moving right the fuck along. It's basically the same plot, you know, the silent era dies, silent the main character, his career goes into the toilets, he has to figure out how to survive. But there's also a dog, so, you know, there's that. Yeah, there is that. Uh, I mean, a dog is, in some regards, a, a improvement over Cosmo. He's kind of obnoxious. Yeah, but he did give us Make Him Laugh, so... I like Cosmo. I'm I'm just being a dick, but he is definitely obnoxious. And yeah. I can see why someone would hate that performance nowadays. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's good in this. Like, this is what he's known for. He's very good in this. It was after this, I think, where he went to go try his, his luck at stand-up at the Comedy Cellar and tried some pretty racially insensitive humor. <laughs> I, think just- I was, I was going to say, we're really lucky that the, the producer didn't come in and take the lesson that they needed to do, like, blackface uh, minstrel shows. <laughs> like, uh, uh, People don't really care about the talking so much. They just love the racism. So, I mean, full disclosure, Swing Time is a movie I like more than Top Hat of the Astaire Rogers musicals. But we are doing Top Hat because it is paired with another movie. We're doing a double feature and uh, there's Blackface and Swing Time. And like, we don't have the time to get into it. One of these days we will come back around to Swing Time because it's a movie I really like that has uh, a really good example of like, how many of these movies, even like quote unquote great movies, have these like um terrible sequences that were like pretty representative of like just a thing that happened at the top? Aaron, when will you have time for justice? Can you ever put justice aside because you don't have the time? Come on, man. I mean, yeah, look, if I you want to hear us, too. if you want to hear us like casually. Pass, uh, pass, pass, pass. Let's move on. <laughs> no, if you do want to hear us do that, I, I'd, recommend, I, 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 I'd, I'd recommend looking into our Lovecraft month because we're going to have a lot to talk about there when uh, we need to talk about, look, we love Lovecraft, but here's some things we need to talk about first. <laughs> uh, yes, most definitely. The the um, When we get to swing time, we'll, we'll parse out a lot of time for that. But yeah, I'm just I'm just glad that this movie actually mostly avoids that stuff. Um, it's it's mostly just about uh, some uh, Hollywood elites trying to you know just a make good art or b work around uh, the egos of other people to get that good art made. Um, Are they it's, trying it's to make a- good art? <laughs> 
they're trying to make art. Yeah, okay. They're trying to make art. That's yeah, they definitely that's like making art. It as, yeah. yeah. It seems like they want to just make successful. Open movies. parentheses F, close parentheses art. You know, it's a machine. They just got to keep the machine rolling. And as long as the machine rolls, they're good. It is kind of amazing how, like, they, they this movie crosses so many genres of, of film for, you know, the 20s to the 40s, um, where, like, yeah, for a significant portion of uh, our cinematic history, there were just, like, these, like, kind of lame romantic period pieces yeah. that, that, like, people would go see. And, like, yeah, if you wanted to act in Hollywood, getting punched over a bar oh in a my cowboy God, movie was probably spot. a fucking rad job. Great stunt work on that, on that, in that. Uh, that western scene he gets flung over the bar that's great this movie actually is sort of a, a very it's a sort of a showcase for Gene Kelly's flexibility yeah. because like he's not just flexible at you know tap or ballet or traditional sort of musical uh, you know bouncing around he he kind of does everything he does yeah. stunt work like it's like well they uh, do a montage at the beginning of this of all his stunts like when he's trying to make it in Hollywood and it's a very funny sequence of like all and it's you know it's Gene Kelly doing all those things yeah I mean honestly I think it's sequence. I think it's the sequence that sells most people on this movie because you know what are you you're 10 15 minutes into the movie right and so far all you've had is them walking up the red carpet to this radio uh, address and he's talking about dignity and then you cut to this ridiculous you know series of you know stunt work and vaudeville singing and just the the comedy of it i if i think back to when i first saw it that's where i was like oh okay great i can get on board with this and yeah the, it's and like then a the five dancing, minute like and then the tap dancing just added to it and everything just builds and builds and builds and it just wins you over but i think it's those that comedy early on that really hooks you yeah, it is like a five a quick like five minute Bugs Money cartoon where it's like all the different like he's in the fire, he's in the western, he's getting blown up in an outhouse and stuff like that, and it is just like a quick like farce and slapstick. Um, and it, it, but you're right, like that kind of zippy montage humor energy is feels a, a little bit ahead of its time in 1952, and it's nothing like the rest of the movie. Also, yeah, that's that's. Odd. He doesn't even he doesn't even stay a stunt man. He becomes a How dare he? I thought this was a movie about a stunt man who made it big and then died tragically in a Oh no, you're thinking of the movie Stunt Man. Oh, oh, right. Did they make a musical about that? Uh they should. I'd see the Stunt Man musical. Stunt Man the musical? Yeah. Uh starring uh starring the same person. Picture this kid. Man? You're a stunt man. But you dance and you sing. Was it Peter O'Toole? They'll do like a Sky Cat from the World of Tomorrow. Peter O'Toole plays the stuntman in the stuntman musical. It's like Lawrence of Arabia, but you're a stuntman. Think about it. Yeah, just use all his footage from there. We don't respect dead artists anymore. <laughs> Fuck, put him in a Star Wars movie. Uh, he can be Grand Moff Tarkin's best like kid friend. <laughs> um, hold on. They definitely put a dead actor in Sky Captain. I think I'd be able to find it easier. Cast. Do hmm. <laughs> like, you mean an actor that's currently dead? No, like, it was Lauren, Lawrence Olivier. Set? Yeah, no, Lawrence Olivier. They used old footage from him, and he was like the main bad guy. It's like, yeah, 
That's very weird. Olivier I've had been deceased, yeah. but it sounds so strange. Olivier had been deceased for nearly 13 years at the time of the filming and was depicted in the film via computer manipulation of video and audio from when he was a young actor. So, yeah, our Peter O'Toole stuntman musical is like, this is from 2004. Guys, we could make this probably on our iPads. <laughs> I have not seen Sky Captain, and I, this, this new information doesn't make me feel bad about that <laughs> you were just about like <laughs> it just came from netflix disc in the mail you were like you you've been slowly leaning in to put it in your dvd player this entire recording so that the second we were done it, it you got to hit uh eject and it went in and now you're like fuck that i was this close to watch uh yeah i'm gonna Scott. say uh this is the classic definition of just because you could do something doesn't mean you should do something <laughs> like like oh we have the technology it's fine don't worry and you're like well what if you just hired a different actor like there's like a million old british actors that are willing to do this like right now and you're like um what if we just hired a dead guy and gave his family <laughs> like some money would that work uh they well they definitely did it to fred astaire in a commercial uh, I feel like they 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 already have done it to Gene Kelly too. Yeah, because the dancing on the ceiling, like he danced with a fucking vacuum. <laughs> they made Fred Astaire dance with a vacuum on the ceiling for like fucking Hoover. <laughs> oh. What are the rules with that? If you're like if you're like nephew wants to sell your rights away, can he just be like, yeah, uh, I don't know, seventy five thousand dollars? Is that is that money? But like, make him dance good. With the Hoover. Don't make him look like a, a, a chump, all right? I got to sell him to uh, Trojan next week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and also, uh, can you play Beatles Revolution over the whole thing? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, good song. Good song. Should be in all the commercials. Because we're a brand. We're making a revolution. Um, what else about this movie? <laughs> um, uh, so this movie is one of the prettiest movies ever made. Oh, yeah. Gorgeous. There's not a frame in it. This is Technicolor porn. Like, there's there's not a frame in it that, that is not stunning. Like, you could pull pretty much any shot of this out, and it would look beautiful. Like, it's so warm and colorful, but never garish, except for the stage play that's kind of supposed to be garish. Uh, and, like, it, it's... Uh, the way that it captures both the staginess of of you know actual theater productions but also it makes what is very clearly staged sets look feel very real like a lot mm-hmm. of the city streets yeah well and it's kind of crazy because we're, we're essentially doing three like gorgeous technicolor movies in a row and we're we're almost doing them in like ascending order of beautifulness like by color like uh, we gentlemen prefer blondes is gorgeous. Singing in the rain is like ten ten steps above that, and West Side Story is I think like nowhere near as good of a movie as this. But like from a Technicolor like coloring and just the way everything looks on screen, like I actually think it's even like maybe one of the best looking movies of all time. We don't get to do that many Technicolor movies. Like it is an aesthetic that essentially died because. People wanted more realism in what film looked like. And then, like, Kodak just stopped making it besides for, like, a brief resurgence somewhere in the 2000s. Um, and then they stopped it again after, like, four years. So, like, it it's it was, like, how a lot of these movies and a lot of, like, when we think back on, like, Wizard of Oz and Singing in the Rain, like, that's 
this this is what we think of and how movies used to look and it is like just something that has stopped and essentially will never no, movies will not look like this again and then digital yep. came along and everybody wanted to be fucking david fincher so yeah but well, like once because yeah because once david fincher and uh uh, uh the coen brothers did i brother oh brother where art thou people are like we can make our movies look like whatever we want but it never had it's still to this day, uh, even though we've gotten a lot better, uh, digital film just is, doesn't have that warmth yet. Um, I, I think at some point it will, but it just hasn't. It's not there yet. Is anyone it even? Looks, it I all mean, ends up looking muddled and just dirty. I mean, the the Avengers movies, for all the fucking money they throw into those, don't look that good. I mean, maybe they're very drab. They're just so drab, you know. I mean, you look at Mad Max as like uh, the, uh, you know, a Fury Road is like the prime example of the last you know few years that went the opposite direction. And I, I don't understand why we're not seeing more of that just vibrant color when you have this technology now that could give that can give you such like crazy contrasts and crazy pop color pop on the screen yeah i i agree and there's also instead the trend has been like it is weird how much looks like even like real people look fake like i like marvel movies i fucking loved aquaman like um it's not that i don't like big blockbusters but what we talked about it i think actually we didn't we didn't talk about it on this podcast i think peter and i may have talked about it when we were hanging out in san diego um but like the way that they use like uh, like facial like smoothing on everyone's faces especially when they're trying to like portray like superheroes or trying to make you know some people in their contract like have like stuff for like digital makeup so they look a little younger and so like people's faces don't look right in a lot of these movies anymore to me they almost look like uh they they have like poor rendering because it's like all the details haven't filled in but it's like just how they look now on screen it's it's weird one of the reasons the Marvel movies don't look uh, very good, uh, at least one of the theories I've heard, is that they purposefully make uh, the movies operate within a certain contrast, within a certain color palette, within a certain level when they're colorizing the movies um, and they're finishing the color palette of the movie because then the movie looks uh, okay to good on every single theater because we still haven't figured out consistency in theater projection for digital movies either. Yeah. Sometimes movies look really, really fucking dark. And one of the ways to fix that is to make sure that your movie doesn't have those wide swings between shadow and light. Um, and so the idea is that basically like the the Marvel movies are like these need to be on airplanes. These need to play on people's yeah. shitty old DVD players. These need to play in someone's house that doesn't have any blinds. These need to play on Netflix and then soon to be whatever. Disney people got to be able to dry these things on caves, like every yeah. <laughs> available like these things need to and they need to look good in your shitty little like you know theater that hasn't upgraded its screen in 30 years and they haven't hired a guy to come and um figure out the the, the right you know settings for the digital projector like the, 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 it has to look good on every one of those outputs to within a certain range and it's a risk to go outside that range that, that so, is like that is a really good theory. Like that, it makes a lot of sense. Um, it's a terrible theory, and here's why: because before digital projection, like it's not like you went to the movie and like 
there, you had a guarantee that the projection was going to be correct. Like I can I can I can't even count the number of times I had to walk out of a theater, you know, even as a young, uh, you know, presumptuous, you know, teenager to say like, hey, your screen's blurry. It, you know, you got your curtains closed halfway on the sides. Now you can't even see the full screen, right? So, I mean, and then it's, and eventually Casey always... realized he needs glasses. Exactly. <laughs> movie theaters have always been shit, <laughs> at least as long as I've been alive. And so, and I think the idea you know, is to I take that the part's... power away from movie theaters. <sighs> well, it, that okay, that's smart. Then I, I take it. Off. I actually think I. I mean, that's a good point. I was just about to say it's actually why not to like plug Alamo Drafthouse, but why I've essentially there was a point where I was just kind of done going to movies in th- in theaters unless it was something I couldn't wait three months to see on on DVD, just because I was like, yeah, it basically looks the same as it does on my TV at this point. Uh, until I started, you know, till we op- they they opened up an Alamo Drafthouse here, and then I was actually seeing movies and like, oh, this looks like the way I remember seeing movies as a kid. Like it does look. Different different than my TV it because they are so concerned with uh, you know sound and projection and stuff like that mm-hmm. but I think to Peter's point I think you're why it makes sense is that um, you know if I buy Black Panther or, or Civil War or something like that even on like 4k and I'm watching it on a 4k TV I'm always like this looks like a mediocre streaming copy like I'm always just so di- like the way that some other movies look in those formats on decent TVs and the way like Aquaman or Marvel movies or some of these like bigger superhero CGI blockbusters look even when it's not the CGI scenes even when it's just like an actor looking it always looks like why doesn't this look that good like I want it to look good it's a huge blockbuster why doesn't it look good <laughs> That's been Aaron's. Why doesn't it look good, Corner? So, I, and I bet you, you could, you would go see these movies in theaters back in the day, and like the yellows looked vomit colored, and the blues looked uh, well. The blues are still also cool. vomit colored. <laughs> um, but, but uh, I just think with techni- I don't know specifically that much about Technicolor film and you know actual celluloid versus digital film, but I just know that's the theory why Marvel movies all look the same. But, like, imagine going to see this these big budget, the biggest movies in the world, and them having this sort of color contrasting and this kind of color range. Like, oh, my God. And, like, so much of the movie is digital anyways. It feels like it's within, within their grasp easily, you know? Yeah, is anyone even tr- – I'm kind of surprised for all the different, like, not just, like, uh, revivals that people have had in, like – Oh, Carpenter movies. People are making, like, early John Carpenter movies and synth scores are back and let's do some silent movies and let's do some cool black and white movies. And, uh, you know, it feels like there's that almost every um, type of movie has gotten a revival in the last 20 years, whether it's stylistically or narratively or something like that. Um, it is kind of weird. Like I, unless I'm forgetting something, I can't imagine asking two likely as w- well-informed people as myself. Like, has anyone tried to like make even a digital movie that looks like a Technicolor movie? Like, I can't think of one. Did you, Did you see um, if Beale Street could talk? That had I, that was amazingly shot color-wise. I don't even know if it I was have- digital, but. Uh, I mean, the closest I could say is like, and it wasn't a successful version of it, but Tim Burton's uh, Big Eyes, 
tried to capture the sort of depth of color of a of a a movie of the 60s like a technicolor era film um but yeah because if anything it feels like the the attempt could be could look horribly but part of what technicolor is and i'm extremely simplifying a concept i don't fully understand is like there is an element of why the why it looks so gorgeous and luscious it's it's like an enhancement of the technique like when they used to like paint cells on a trip of the trip to the moon it's why it almost looks like you're watching an amazing artist's rendering of like the real world and why it looks so gorgeous is that there is like filmatic color correction but like because it's pre-digital it's like basically done with like an element of like mm. paint um paint's not the right word but the the you you get what kind of it is from the from that so it feel it feels like it does feel like digital could probably make a shitty version of this that looks weirdly smoothed over but it it definitely it feels like within the realm of possibility that that you could make something that digitally did a similar thing i've just never seen it i think uh the aviator is a interesting example uh, Did they do the, a Technicolor it, sequence? I don't remember a Technicolor sequence. It's I, I just okay. So I, I I know parts of it were digitally faked to kind of try and imitate yeah uh, Technicolor film processes, but they didn't obviously didn't shoot it in Technicolor. But uh, Scorsese uh, Scorsese's movies tend to have colors that just fucking pop like that. So I can't point to anything specifically because like. Parts of Hugo also look like they were shot in Technicolor, so. But I remember the Aviator specifically feels feels like it was trying to capture that sort of depth of, of contrast. Oh, fun fact. So I did just, I looked. So they did do a, I remember they, they brought it back for a little bit and they did do a few movies in the 90s that were shot in the same dye transfer process. Um, oh. And they're all movies you're, you've heard of. Uh, and the answers will surprise you because you're like, those are fucking Technicolor movies. Uh, <laughs> some of them look terrible. Um, so uh, one is the, the most bizarre one is Bullworth. What? I mean, Bullworth, I remember liking. It's kind of a bland looking sun drenched like 90s comedy, though. Yeah. Uh, Thin Red Line. I don't think Bullworth looks that much better than any Adam Sandler comedy. Uh, I yeah, I don't. Rem- I mean, I I don't remember. I don't. I definitely don't remember what it looks like from a cinematography standpoint. Let's say that I do remember a lot of Warren Beatty rapping uh, and wanting to fuck Halle Berry. Um, yeah, you poor thing. Uh, the Thin Red Line, uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, which I guess actually Pearl Harbor is probably a really good example of like using that process to try to make something look like it's set in the forties, but also because the technology wasn't good enough and they weren't using, they were still using the digital dye process in it. It kind of looked like shit. Um, uh, Godzilla from 1998 and uh, Toy Story 2. And then it was discontinued again uh, in 2002. We can't adequately capture it because some part of it just exists in our brain. Because we just remember the the gorge, like we remember the rear window, right? We remember uh, Peeping yeah. Tom, and like we remember. Uh, I'm mostly thinking of Hitchcock movies because his movies were so pretty. Um, the red shoes. But it, 
The Red yeah. Shoes. Yeah, we're most remembering uh, films of that era. Uh, that cap. Yeah, it was insane. It's, I, you said Peeping Tom right next door. It was, it was Red Shoes. Um, so that I think we're mostly highlighting the the uh, particular examples of. of technical smart filmmakers using every color in their palette and uh there were probably lots of, i mean there were lots and lots of garish ugly movies that use the technicolor process like i imagine like the fucking like pink panther movies or something off the top of my head i mean it was the same um, it was the same thing as 3d you know 10 years five ten years ago when they were just like hey, it's in 3d right oh it's in technicolor come spend even more yeah. of your money to see colors on the screen. Oh, to see co- things in three dimensions. Great. Like, it doesn't matter unless you execute it well. And, uh, you know, given the movies you just named, even with the revival, you know, clearly that was not the case. Mm-hmm. It was just like, oh, sure, different color. Let's fucking use it. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I do think, though, there is an element to why, like, there is something about the way it looks when it looks well, which is why, like, I get a weird, warm oh. feeling when I think back on, like, a Singing in the Rain. Absolutely. Or, uh, but it basically comes Avengers, down to... Avengers, Adventures of Robin Hood is a good example where, like, I just think about them and I picture Errol Moore smiling or Gene Kelly dancing. And it's like, it gives me a warm feeling, even in a way other movies I love from this era doesn't in, a, in like, kind of an ineffable way that I can't quite even articulate. Like, when I when I think of, like, Out of the Past, which is one of my favorite movies, mm-hmm. or uh, other, like, even It's a Wonderful Life. Like, It's a Wonderful Life gives me, like, uh, amazing, like, feelings and stuff like that. But I don't, like, get, a, like, a weird glow in my soul when I think of, like, images from Wizard of Oz that I do when I, like, look think about images from Wizard of Oz or Singing in the Rain or Adventures of Robin Hood or all these ones that just have this, like, uh, ethereal quality. That's fair. But ultimately, it comes down to give great filmmakers the most tools possible and they will use them to their to the fullest extent possible and give you the best work you know the more tools you give martin scorsese the better the fucking picture is going to look and the better the movie's going to be and that basically you know and the the way you know and the hollywood has been the whole history of hollywood is and this movie is about this it's about both giving you more tools and then taking them away like giving you more options and then well the industry goes in one direction, so you lose out on certain options. And, and but then the movie also does a very good job of showing you exactly why it's an ind- it's a collaborative industry and an industry of fucking compromise because they set out to make a you know a hackneyed you know uh, historic drama historical drama and they end up with a uh, with a friggin' David Lynch, you know, musical, basically. <laughs> so yeah, it's true. I mean, um, honestly, that we 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 were joking that it was probably a terrible movie, but it might have been trippy as fuck. So I don't know. <laughs> um, it, that is a really good point, though, because one of the things that this movie—I don't think it's really its theme, but it but it is the like the the reason that Singing in the Rain exists, and the reason like that started to be a popular genre. These like colorful or non-colorful like musicals is because of like 
the, the introduction of sound like people had to start going okay well it's not just about now we don't have to put those title cards up on the screen uh, now we can talk and then the f- next thing was well if you can talk and you can have sound and you can do X and you can have a, a soundtrack that's not based on whatever the band plays in the room that night that's actually within the, the film itself what else can we do and so it's not surprising that like not just that the musical genre and, you know, exploded pretty quickly after because that's kind of an obvious thing. It's also why anytime you watch a Marx Brothers movies, there's like a song or two in them because people were just like that was like exciting to see like uh, it, to not just hear the jokes and hear people talk like. Uh, now those are kind of the moments because no one put that much care into them that are almost like the shitty special effects you go back to in 90s movies because it's like people want CGI monsters and now they look like garbage. It's why when you go back to fucking a day at the races and there's a random like song number from someone, you're like, this is a boring part of this movie. But that was like that was the special effects extravaganza in the 30s. Throw a song into the movie. That'll blow people's fucking socks off. Yeah, and then and it's their only pair of socks because it's the depression. So it's they have to go not bare feet. You know, no more socks. I, I think that's a great transition to discuss what your favorite song is in "Singing in the Rain." Uh, it's not even a question. It's Moses supposes. Is it really? Yeah. All right. Pete. Now hold on. Let's let's actually ask a. I want to clarify the question. Are you asking which musical sequence is my favorite? Musical or which sequence. song sequence. removed from? No, okay, no, no. It's de- then it's definitely song Moses plus supposes. dancing plus you know whole sequence. Hundred percent Moses supposes. Interesting. All right, Pete, what do you got? You got one? Good morning. Just broke my brain. By the time they fell on the couch, I like slumped back in my chair too. Like I was exhausted. Also, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the sequence is so fucking good. It's so good. It's, 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 it's number it's two. Good like, morning. It's it's good morning for me. Also, yeah, yeah. Good yeah, morning's my so number two. Um, I just there's that part where they're like dancing on the chair and Moses supposes, um, that just still like kind of that that's like a brain breaking moment for me. When I watch like, Moses the way supposes, it feels like they're trying to like outdance one another, like they're mm-hmm. going at a rate that you don't you're like how are you keeping this up you've been dancing for four minutes you're going fucking crazy you still got that serial killer grin on your face are you breathing you know it's like (laughs) well but then the finale of that is when they're like like and i wish it like watching that with my kid too like she like her eyes and her mouth were agape like and when they're like going up and down off the chair and then fast dancing on the chair and then just getting faster and faster and faster. There is something like truly awe-inspiring about that moment. The song's a lot of fun, but you're right. Like the speed and the way they're trying to outdance each other is like just a visceral energy. But I agree that good morning, like for happiest uh, and easily a number two pick for me. And I want to do a shout out to make them laugh, which is, you know not the best song or dance of this movie but a pretty damn good performance by one man and then fully recreated by joseph gordon levitt in his uh snl monologue back in like 2002 or whatever that's right um and you know what uh what's actually super impressive um is that 
not only does this song singing in the rain hold up, which I think it does. Like I have been singing it since rewatching this movie again. Uh, I think the, the sequence holds up really well. Uh, even though it's very iconic, it is, it is one of the few sequences I can think of, of like an iconic song, an iconic moment that has, that its power carries through despite the fact that it has been, um, the song itself has, was then years, you know, a couple decades later used for a totally different purpose that in some cases can ruin the original because, uh, we don't need to get into it too much, but in Clockwork Orange, it's used for a much less happy moment that, and I, that moment also became, uh, iconic from a, from a cinematic standpoint and all of its brutal horror and the way that the, the song itself was juxtaposed uh, on that brutal horror. And somehow, even despite that also being a pop culture touchstone related to this song, the song itself and the sequence in this movie has not lost none of its, like, joy and power. Raise your hand if you saw A Clockwork Orange before Singing in the Rain. Oh, God. Oh, yeah, a, de- a decade yeah. or more. Yeah. A decade or more. It's um, And yet what was great? I thought of Clockwork Orange when the movie started. Yeah. Um, and then didn't think about it for the next 145 minutes. Like, the movie has such a transformatively pure power that I just, like, for I pushed... And I, I don't mind Clockwork Orange. Like, it's it's a good, good movie. Um, but the movie just... This movie just pushed all of the parodies, all of the the riffs, all the jokes out of my head. And by the time that moment arrived, I was just like, oh. <laughs> it's like I just needed the, the purity of this moment. Like there was no there's no bullshitting. There was no uh, there's no silliness. Somehow this movie is parody proof. And I don't know how how it fucking did it. Yeah. How how did you guys feel about the uh, uh, I I really like the the romance quite a bit um i do too debbie reynolds is like so fucking cute she's so charming yeah and and it and it, i i love the way it starts i actually think i i have no idea how i would even look this up but i have to imagine this is kind of one of the earliest uh tropes of the idea of the the super famous man being or super famous person man or woman being super attracted to the uh, quote-unquote commoner uh, who um, doesn't really like give them mind or knows them that well or treats them like just a normal person they're having a conversation with because that's like that is such a common trope it is it is like I just went and saw Longshot and it's kind of the plot of Longshot and Notting Hill and like that I how many like TV shows are like you don't know who I am or you're not that interested in me? Like I don't know, man. Uh, the first A Star Is Born was 1937, and that's the same idea, right? Of like uh, the super famous man. But is but that's not a that's not a super famous person who like the other person doesn't know who they are, right? Hmm. All right, that's fair. Yeah. Because that because that's kind of what this is. The it's idea like, that yeah okay yeah. Um, not that not that the famous versus is the kind of like oh yeah oh you started movies oh yeah I've heard of you but I don't watch that many movies and you're not these aren't really movies like um and and I like that 
even in this way, like I, I used the word neg, which was not a term in the 50s. But Gene Kelly kind of starts treating her like garbage and she kind of responds with like, well, I, you're not even like her passive aggressive attacks on him back is so charming. And I really like that kind of starts off their relationship on a with with a level of like equal footing that I also find uh, that's not definitely not always the case in going back to some of these movies, but I find very charming. She's a delight, and there's not there's not many things in this movie that didn't age well, you know, and that's that's good to see, you know, watch and as someone who watches it back every year or two, you know, you don't feel bad going back and watching it because there's not this ridiculous uh, mistreatment of the romance uh, by modern standards. Um, even if he does treat her like shit a little bit and get her to respond. <laughs> but, you know, nobody's perfect. She's, like, effortlessly huge in this movie. Like, she's not some timid, quiet little lady who just gets swept up by the charms of this Hollywood roguish character. Like, she's... she's uh, she has her own sense of power. She has her own sense of fun. And she gets fucking pissed when she thinks she's getting jerked around, right? She's the 1950s Anna Kendrick is what she is. That's very true. It's very true. Yeah. Where, like people people uh, think they can push her around because she's got like this sort of, uh, you know, girlish timid sort of quality when she first speaks to you but then like you you start to underestimate her and yeah she'll she'll totally surprise you um it's a similar sort of quality just that's that sort of like just effortless charm yeah and um and that that relates like i think both of them even with gene gene kelly's creepy smile like I know this is incredibly reductive, but I feel like there's if you if I if I if you allow me to be incredibly reductive for a moment, there's you can almost classify like musicals into two categories, right? There's like the musicals that all are about like music as a way to express the innermost feelings of a character. So it's you know it's it's like the my feelings are so big. That instead of just expressing them verbally, I'm going to sing them. So you have a, you know, Little Shop of Horrors is a good example of while there's a lot of fun songs, it's like it's people singing their feelings. Uh, and then there's another part of there's the, the other type of musicals in this my arbitrary two category system are like, uh, you know, what's fun singing and dancing. And and this is very much the uh, a perfect example of the latter and having two characters that they almost have like besides the initial like I'm a big deal and I don't think you're a big deal uh, like little little meet cute. There's not that much conflict in their romance ever. And sometimes and like that's kind of fun. Like there is definitely a conflict in the fact that um you know, Debbie Reynolds has like aspirations and Gene Kelly wants, uh, wants her to be able to achieve those aspirations. And there's a roadblock in the way that they need to overcome as a couple. Uh, and then a little bit of like, Oh, you were about to go along with this, even though I wasn't going to be along for the ride. But like the second they like decide they like each other, like that's it. And so they just get to have fun and dance and like their love and their relationship is never really in question. It's just what their careers and their life would be. And like that, that's fun. 
you don't get that that often there's always like um you know something that like has to be an obstacle that needs to be overcome sometimes it's compelling and sometimes it's not but just like hey what if two charming fun (laughs) happy dancers uh get together and dance and sing for a while like uh, it's great yeah, it, it has like a sweet kind of like zippy quality that, and then it just decides in the last like, I don't know, 15 minutes to have a conflict. And that's usually a sign of a bad movie. <laughs> um, but here it's fine because it's just like the catalyst to reaffirm uh, Kathy and Don's relationship. It's not, it's, 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 t- it's telling you something you already know, but it's making a big show a big gesture about it and like in that way the sort of plotlessness of it and the fact that it it throws in a sort of a surprising rudimentary moment like that uh matches the tone of the movie super well because it's essentially like you know falling in love is cool yeah you know, like you know dancing is cool you know that it's fun to make movies and be on stage and perform like you know all that stuff is fun like the movie's not telling you anything you don't know it's just it's the way it's telling it to you just the way it's telling that story that you've heard a million times is just somehow so refreshing in a movie that's 80 years old basically uh yeah and uh, let's also like this movie's also really funny like there's oh, a, very funny. There's a lot of parts that like made me laugh out loud that are not always some of the most obvious ones. Like I really like the dialogue when they're recording when it's still a silent movie and Gene Kelly fucking hates his co-star. And like so they have to mouth all these like things that are kind of like supposed to look like I love you and they're like why would you fire that person? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> like that's a very that's a very funny sequence. Um I do love how excited they all get about the most obvious fucking scheme in the entire goddamn world at the end of this movie. Like, the way all of them are like, okay, yeah, go out and sing! Yeah, no, it's gonna be fine. Like, yeah, we'll just put the curtain down. She's gonna stand right behind. Like, I love the joy in, like, concocting a scheme. And I do think the scheme in some ways is supposed to be a little, little stupid, but it's a lot of fun. But I also like when she's like, Hey, yeah, check your contract. I signed it. 1933. I'm going to sue you for the studio. Like, um, all this stuff is like, uh, or the way they all are like shitting on talkies. Like it, it, it has a lot of those moments that I, I'm, sh- I'm not surprised. We're not just funny at now, but I'm sure they were cutting at the time. Like this, this was a tough transition for the industry. This is kind of like the player of 1952. It does have a bite to it that I think is is. Um, <laughs> I just think everything is so cynical now that a lot of the bite can be hidden in this movie, and you just see it as like flying you just see it as like how people talk about hollywood because a lot of these cynical hollywood satires have changed the way that we talk about business and the way we talk about hollywood we're not talking about them in this sort of idealized fashion anymore we're talking about it as uh movers and shakers playing pragmatic games to dethrone one another from the top like that's how we view hollywood now because of movies like this and sunset boulevard and all about eve and yada yada um a lot of like a lot of the best movies of all time um 
The jokes in here are so fucking good. There's a joke very early on that took my breath away because it was so like fast and sounded so modern. Um, they're watching a silent movie where, and the movie's sort of making fun of of you know how stilted silent movies were. Yeah. Um, there's a whole sequence involving a mic that that she like refuses to talk to the mic because oh, yeah. she she always talks over here and over here and over here. I don't know if that'll uh, to turn up on your guys's mic when in the final recording because uh, modern mics are so much better than the ones in the day. But um, the, there's a sequence that similarly was is making fun of silent movies. But there's a scene where he's like uh, Don is very stiffly sort of like uh, kissing his maiden's arm or something, and and uh, a theater goer goes, "He's so refined. I think I'll kill myself." <laughs> <laughs> so it made me like it. I like gasped. I was like, "That's such a modern, like almost meta joke." Well, Pauline Kael like called this. Now she was she was alive when this came out. She didn't become a, a, a critic till about a decade later. But like she she referred to this as like a malicious sat. Like her quote is a malicious satire of Hollywood. And I think the maliciousness has like degraded with age because we're so far away from not just the silent movie era and all that stuff, but like. Uh, but like the the fifties Hollywood era, but like the people that made this movie w- were producers and writers and directors uh, at the time of this transition, which is why they used it as like the backdrop for their kind of like jukeboxy musical. Like they had things to say <laughs> about Are, about how it went down. How many how many of them actually were though? Like working during the era when it was still silent right because i mean when did gene kelly and these actors get their start i I know the co-director of this was only like 28 at the time like how many of them actually made the transition and like knew that and how much of this was just kind of like in the same way that right now we look back on the 80s and 90s as like a we're already nostalgic about that time and it's only you know 25 30 years ago uh like in the way that we look at old computers and rotary phones already in the way that they're looking at an old microphone that doesn't pick up sound perfectly, you know? Like, I wonder how much was actual satire that's now been kind of lost to time and how much of it was just, like, already being nostalgic for 20, 25 years earlier. I definitely don't think it was nostalgia. But I, but I do like Stanley. You're right. Stanley Dunan was a young person. He was he was like three during the transition to to sound and stuff like that. He he was not the only writer on this movie. I guess what's more accurate, at least from a lived and experience standpoint, is like the writers of this movie were probably 17, 18 around the time of this transition. So it's definitely like they may have not been active in the industry, but it's definitely probably something that they were involved with or were aware of or heard stories of. And kind of like poked and mocked and and had some things to say about that. All right, yeah. So I feel like we could we could we could write we could write a movie about the you know the eighties that like even if like I was I was born in the mid eighties but like I or even in the early nineties I could write a movie about that time because I'm aware of a lot of things that were happening and going on even if I didn't experience them them firsthand so i I just feel like there's a lot well yeah i mean i i could i could write a movie you're right because i could write a movie easily about like like 
the transition to like everything needs to be shitty CG. Like that all occurred in the mid nineties. What are you waiting for, man? It's when I when I was when I was singing in the rain. (laughs) Yeah, like when I was fifteen or sixteen. So I was very much aware of what was going on in the industry and how like you just go to these movies and are like, huh, this is worse than the fucking Dino Crisis two game I just played on PlayStation. So I could easily, uh, you know, probably write a movie about or at least have have some personal connection to like how fucking dumb that was. Um. Or how how bizarre it was. I actually so we can do let's do some some moments we didn't get a chance to to talk about and then do some final thoughts. I just wanted to give a shout out to I know I already mentioned it one time, but the red shoes. Uh, <laughs> while we're on the Technicolor and the you know the ending of this movie, I saw this. I saw American in Paris. I saw all of the major you know fifties musicals. And then I saw The Red Shoes, which is from 47, 48, something 46? like that. 46. Yeah. And there's that 15-minute ballet sequence in the middle of that film. And you're just like, oh, my God. This was years, a few years, you know, five, ten years before a lot of these musicals with their big 15, 20-minute you know, sequences like the gotta dance sequence, or the Broadway melody sequence here. And you're like, and they just knocked it out of the park. And I have to assume that, you know, they're that the musical filmmakers at the time found um, inspiration in that red shoes sequence. And I just rewatched oh, it. Sure. I just rewatched it last week. Um, and uh, also shout out to the criterion channel, which uh, is amazing. Um, and yeah, big fan of fifteen minute uh, ballet <laughs> and Broadway sequences. So, yeah, um, yeah. My only like final like I guess comment about Singing in the Rain before we do some final thoughts is that if you did like this, like <laughs> that's such a weird thing to say about Singing in the Rain. If this was up your alley, one of the best and most joyful movies of all time. <laughs> but uh, if you are looking for like a movie that I think actually comes close to this, that I was, I was kind of like, oh, I wish there was a way to fit this in this month. Is um, you should see it's always fair weather, which is another Gene Kelly Technicolor musical that I'd never heard of until like four or five years ago when it was a movie of the week on the on the dissolve before that went away. Um, and it is so like the, the scene in fuck, what's the Coen brothers movie? Hail Caesar. Uh, like the, hail Caesar. So like the scene in hail Caesar where they're like sailors at the bar oh is like God, a direct parody of, uh, it's always fair weather. Um, but it's always fair weather rules and, and definitely feels like almost a companion piece to singing in the rain. Uh, in a way that a lot of the other 50s musicals, even though very good, don't don't strike me as. Uh, yeah, final thoughts. We'll let Peter. It's kind of his month. This is like his birthday month where we only give him presents that he doesn't really want, but sometimes enjoys surprisingly. Uh, we'll give we'll let him do the, the final final thoughts. But I'll just say, yeah, I mean, this revisiting this was great. I was so excited that um, weirdly my daughter was already a fan. Uh, <laughs> so she also agreed it's a great movie, but like, 
you know, one of the things I really love about doing these musical months is it gives us a chance to like do stuff that I'm not, I'm also not watching that often. Like we do a lot of horror months. And even if I'm not watching the particular horror movies that we're doing in a given month, I watch a ton of horror stuff. I watch a ton of comedies. I watch a ton of sci-fi, like musicals in general are like, uh, like I really want to see Anna and the apocalypse, but they're so few and far between and only a couple come out per year. And like, it takes a lot to make a musical good. Cause you have to have songs you enjoy. And like, especially like a musical comedy, like that can be so cringy. Yeah. So even though it's a genre that I've always said I liked, it is, I like, I am not one of those people that like, as long as they're singing, I love it. Like it's in the same way. Like it's hard to make a good Western nowadays. It's hard to make a good musical nowadays. Um, and so when, when, you know, the one or two good Westerns we get a year, I eat up when there's a good musical, which I think is even rarer than Westerns. Like I eat it up, but as a result, like I'm just not watching the genre with the frequency that I do. Most of the other things we get to cover each month. And like the gentlemen prefer blondes last week. Um, and singing in the rain, uh, are like the two prime examples of why I love these months so much, because it's just these amazing fun sequences and dancing and singing and just gorgeous cinematography. And they're just like breezy and fun in a way that, uh, that like not many other movies of any genre are. So yeah, I mean, you don't need to tell you don't need me to tell you that Singing in the Rain is great, but like I I hope that for you for people that listen that um that sometimes like to rewatch the movies and stuff like that, I really hope that if you didn't already rewatch it prior to listening to this, that you you uh take uh, uh, an hour and 40 minutes in and give it a spin us doing these months that seem out of our wheelhouse at first is a little exhausting i think because it's we have to change our language a bit the way you gotta that we say talk dance about... instead of murder because <laughs> so much of the way that they discuss i mean obviously you can say the, the photography is gorgeous and that would be true across the line for all film but this is the way you that action is communicated the way that character is communicated the way that emotions are communicated in musicals is just so different and you have to be more comfortable with broader emotions and you need to be more comfortable with uh watching the way people move as opposed to the way people dictate a bit of dialogue and like it just it, it takes you out of your wheelhouse also there's very few beheadings in musicals um very few. It's like maybe in Les Mis, but other than that, I, I just don't know. Um, well, according to Casey, that remake was Lame Miz. <laughs> lame is. Lame is. He's um, lame. But, so. So the, the taking you outside of your typical taking us outside our typical perspective is always really fun for the show and making us do these movies that like we typically would not talk about is always fun and it's always great to have guests on who are clearly very passionate about this stuff so thank you so much Casey for coming on. What are your final thoughts Casey? You can, you can take us out. I only have 3 things to say. First of all, I got three things to say. Dignity. <laughs> Gotta dance. God damn it. <laughs> Number one, oh, was dignity. One? Always dignity. Number two, <laughs> I can't stand him. And number three, <laughs> gotta dance, gotta dance, gotta dance, gotta dance. Sorry, I've been build- waiting to say that the whole time. I hope you had a fucking creepy ass smile on your face. <laughs> I sure. While you did, did it, because if not, why? Do. What's the point at this point?
Yeah, so true, so true. Um, so Casey, mm. thank you so much for coming on again. For what do you have, have to promote? To plug? I have nothing to promote except that I love the Criterion channel and everyone should subscribe. Well, that is quite a plug. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, we'll. We'll, of course, hopefully get uh, 50% of the kickback money you're getting from the Criterion <laughs> channel, too. Because uh, most film fans haven't heard it. It's pretty obscure, so I'm pretty sure that the only way to be promoting it is with a kickback. But uh, I've been excited to check it out. I wish it was on some fucking platform I could watch on my TV easily. Are you kidding me? Uh, this was this what do you have? Si- well, do you not I have, have uh, Roku or Apple or anything? I mean, I have a PlayStation 4 and an Xbox One and then, like... The apps on the TV, and this was the same goddamn problem. My like, dude, film struck. My dude, an Amazon Fire Stick or a Roku Stick is like twenty bucks tops these days. Like, how many do you need to buy? One for each movie? No, what's just g- one for like a thousand apps? I, I understand uh, how Fire Stick works. Um, but anyway, they need to get it on Amazon channels. I still have like a hundred criterions I've never fucking seen, so I'm gonna get through that and get the channel. I have like a thousand, man. There's so there's so many now. Okay, well you win digitally. Uh, <laughs> but but thank you so much for coming. <laughs> thank you so much for coming back on uh, the show. I I hope you'll be be on again soon with as we said a very specifically a movie from the 1960s. Uh, Peter, we got a couple of these left. Yeah, we've got uh, West Side Story. With story. no guest. <laughs> Takes place on the West Side. No guest on that one, huh? <laughs> I forgot to tell you. Uh, our guest uh, had to cancel. She was very sorry. She will be on uh, Rachel Graff, who was in our last two musical May. She will be on next year. Uh, even though she picked it, I want to note... Because uh, I don't want uh, that she uh, could had trouble finding time to fit in the, the two and a half hour movie into her schedule uh, in in the short period of time. So again, not not a great start to I think West Side Story, which may be our most divisive musical, and that our guest had to bail because it was too long. Something that Peter notoriously hates about movies. So, yeah, uh, I was gonna say is I made Molly watch West Side Story, and I won't share my thoughts yet. But uh, if you want to have a hate fest episode, bring her on because she was mad that we just, watched that movie. We are wrapping up with. Top pennies from Top Heaven. Wait, pennies from heaven and Top Hat? I wasn't sure if it was one of our famous uh, say words wrong and that kind of counts as a joke or if it was a legitimate mess up on your part. (laughs) I did say Top Pennies. Incorrect. The second half was a bad joke. Okay. Uh, It is Top Hat and Pennies. From heaven. Pennies from heaven, the Steve Martin. As opposed to Pennies from Hell, which is referring to ass pennies, referring to a UCP sketch from 2003. (laughs) Uh, Look it up. Yeah, it was on Comedy Central. So check out It's Always Fair Weather, The Red Shoes, The Criterion Channel, and The Ass Pennies sketch from the Comedy Central Upright Citizens Brigade television show. I will be referencing it. You have two weeks. Okay. Uh, Yeah, Pennies from Heaven, which is uh, kind of a commentary on... 1930s musicals it is like hey you know how in this depression era everyone was dancing but it was the depression and no one really talked about that because they were so busy dancing what if we did all the dancing with all of the like 
realistic gritty depression components um, <laughs> and it's amazing it's really good uh and that i love steve martin uh and Everyone was so shocked about Christopher Walken dancing in the Fatboy Slim music video. Christopher Walken is the one of the villains in this movie, and he has some amazing dance sequences. And so, Burn does he breakdance? Yep, he yep he invented breakdancing. Hell um, yeah! And the makers of Breaking and Breaking Two, Electric Bugaloo. Also, do you think that's where Breaking dropped the G? They're like a fucking singing in the rain. Doesn't have no G. Breaking and Breaking Two. Also, hyphen at the end of the end. Do you think that's what happened, Peter? Do you think Canada? Yeah, did that? sure. That's that's sure. probably what happened. I so yeah, think. yeah. That's what we're ending on, uh, and then uh, probably next week or we'll we'll announce June, which I am so excited to share. But for now, it's a surprise. Uh, but yeah, probably the month I've been most excited about uh, this year so far. So that's all I got. Yeah. It is going to be a blast, and next week we can announce what our next month of movies is. Yeah. So for now, we're we're going to be sleeping in our beds, just sleeping <laughs> in, our in our beds. beds. Uh, but it'll probably be wet because I I pee pee the bed quite often. Uh, good night. So cool, dude. Yeah. Thanks. Safe space. Um, it's warm for like a little bit. Oh, it gets you cozy for like a tiny, literally like a second. And then you gotta switch beds. Then you got switch beds or switch bots with your spouse. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, it depends how much you pee. You might also have. I try to spread love. Yeah, marriage, marriage is a partnership. Here's the thing. Uh, people are always saying they want the cold side of the pillow. Uh, what? Uh, why not the cold side of the bed that's covered in urine? Yeah, I do that out of love. Anyways, good night. Good night. I'm singing in the rain. Just singing in the rain What a glorious feel And I'm happy again I'm laughing at clouds So dark up above The sun's in my heart And I'm ready for love Let the stormy clouds chase Everyone from the place Come on with the rain, I've a smile on my face. I walk down the lane with a happy refrain. Hey folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch. Or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help.
And we're also available, if you don't use iTunes, we're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.